You are listening to the weekly sermon podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. If you'd like to learn more about CBC, check out our website at cbcofsavannah.org. And now this week's sermon from the series, Choose This Day, from the book of Joshua. Father, we are here to adore your Son, the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one who Micah prophesied would be born in Bethlehem hundreds of years before it took place, and just as you ordained and you sovereignly controlled a census to take place at the right time, at the right place to get the right family, just in your providence and your will, because you are good and you are truth. And everything you say is true. And so we're here now to open your word, Lord Jesus, the very word that by your spirit you inspired. Uh, And you've called broken men like myself to preach it. Why? I have no idea. Because I'm not worthy, nor am I capable on my own. And so I just ask that your spirit would fill me, uh, that your spirit would empower me uh, to hear these words that that are fresh and true and are needed for my own soul, but clearly for your body, Lord. I pray that this church would exalt you, Lord Jesus. We can only do it in your power and by your spirit. And so may your word fill us, may it nourish us so that your spirit guides us and leads us, that we may be your lights in the world. We pray this in the name of Christ and for his reputation. Amen. Thanks. You guys have a seat. All right. It's great. This is a great singing. I love that the slides are broke, but y'all know the song. That's kind of nice, all right? Fortunately, we weren't introducing a new song at the last one there, but um, many of you men have probably lost some major sanctification this week, putting up Christmas lights, I'm sure. Um, if you're like myself. I don't know who invented the one bulb goes out, the whole strand goes out bulb, uh, but it, I can't fathom why. I'm sure some electrical engineer will tell me why later. I'm not really, I'm not interested. I just want it to be fixed. Uh, <laughs> This week, I was able to put up the nice lights for my wife, and, and they were on, but then they went off, and then I had to undo the entire thing because I couldn't get them back on because the one light was off. Um, and our text this morning is a little bit like that. It's that if that this light is out, then the rest of the lights are out. Um, it, it's, it's very similar. We're going to look, we're going to close out the book of Joshua today. Um, in Joshua chapter 24, and we've been talking about decisions and, and choices that, that the scripture is bringing us to, that these people of Israel were brought to, and we've had all sorts of decisions, 14 and all so far, to be prepared and, and to be holy and to be gracious and, and to age well and to be joyful and all these things, but really, you could start in chapter 24, because if you don't have chapter 24, all the rest of them, the lights are off. This is probably or definitely is the most important decision. And really, it's why we entitled this series, Choose This Day, is right out of this text, probably one of the more famous texts in this book. Today's choice is, who are you gonna serve? Choose this day whom, to whom you will serve. Because as the great theologian, Bob Dylan, said, 
You might like to wear cotton and you might like to wear silk. You might drink whiskey, you might drink milk, you might eat caviar, you might eat bread, you might sleep on the floor or in a king-size bed. But everybody, indeed, yes, everybody has got to serve somebody. Maybe the devil, maybe the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. I don't know if he's a believer, but his theology is pretty good. Because the choice that Joshua is going to bring them to is say, okay, it's the end of his life. We saw that last week as William preached. This is the deal. This is the end. He's going the way of everyone else. He has spoken to the leaders. Now he's going to gather all the people of Israel, and he's going to say, okay, no more of this fence sitting. You have to choose today who are you going to serve, right? And as he gives us, and he's not neutral, by the way. He's not like, I don't care what you do. He is very, he, he is saying, this is where you need to go. And he's going to argue, you need to serve the Lord. You need to serve Yahweh. But there's going to be three considerations in this final choice that he's going to bring in this chapter that I want to bring out today. Because it's the same three choices that were constantly faced through scripture. As Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. Three considerations when you should got to choose, am I going to follow Christ or am I not? Because everyone's got to serve somebody, right? Everyone's got to. And so let's, let's jump into the text and see these three considerations when choosing. Because I, look, I don't, I'm not neutral. As a church, we want to be a church that chooses to follow Christ. We're not saying, oh, go do what you want. No, we want you to follow Christ. And so three considerations from our text today. We're going to jump into Joshua chapter 24. Let's look at verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads and the judges and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Whenever you see a location in the scripture, you know, good students of the Bible kind of identify, okay, where is that? Can I find that? Is there any significance there? And there's something in verse one, he says, all the tribes of Israel, they were brought to where? To Shechem. So if you get out your Bible dictionary, your Bible atlas, or whatever you have in your study Bible, you'll see that Shechem comes up a couple times in the scripture. The first time it comes up is in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham is called by God out of his place in modern day Iran, in Ur of the Chaldees, or Iraq, excuse me. And God says, I'm going to send you to a land that you don't know. And so he gets on his horse or camel or whatever, and he heads to that land. And as soon as he crosses over into the land, it says he came to Shechem. And it's at Shechem for the first time God makes a promise. He hasn't told him this yet. He tells him at Shechem, I am going to give your descendants this land at Shechem. That's 500 plus years earlier. Now, here they are. That was one guy. Okay? Here they are several million people later in the exact same spot where God promised them 500 pluses earlier, I'm going to give you this land. And here they are, they're in the land, and they're about to go, right? That's a neat moment. That's, that's kind of one of those hallowed ground places, right? They see another, just another place of testimony of God's faithfulness. So there they are at Shechem. In verse 2, and Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And now what you're going to see is he's going to switch from third person the first person. If you could turn the read verb down here or something, because it's crazy up here. Or I don't know. Can you guys hear that? Is it just me? Yeah, it's bothering me very badly. Okay, so whatever it is, you guys are on it. I know. Um, all right. There, that's a little better, I think. Okay, so 
He's going to switch now from the third person, God said this, to the first person. And 18 times in the next 12 verses, he's gonna say, I, 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 I. He is speaking as the Lord's prophet here. I said this, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. And the purpose is he's going to recount all these things that he's been doing for the last 400 years because he's bringing them to a decision point, all right? This decision to choose. And you can jump down to verse 14 and he says this. There it is. Now, therefore, after that, that key word, therefore, and when you see the word therefore, he asks what is therefore, right? In light of all these things he's about to say, all these testimonies of his faithfulness, all these things, what does he say? Fear the Lord and serve him. This is where he's going to challenge them. Choose who you're going to serve, right? But he's going to tell them all these things. Look what God has done. And here's the first kind of consideration as we choose who to serve. And it's this consideration. He's going to say, look, it's the only logical, rational choice. To serve Christ, to serve Yahweh, it is the only rational choice after you consider all these things. The idea is if you don't do it, what are you thinking? You're crazy. And I want to kind of work through and just highlight all these things that God says, this is what I did, this is what I do, this is what I've done, this is what I do, this is what I've done. So jump back to verse 2. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Now this is a key verse that we blow other, over. The beginning of the people of Israel started with who? With Abraham. Now where was Abraham? I got a map here. Go to the map. There it is. Okay, here's where Abraham was. It's a little blurry, but this is where he lived, Ur of the Chaldees. And what was he doing there? He was worshiping false gods. Him and his daddy and his daddy before him, right? And God shows up in Genesis 12 and says, I'm gonna move you to a different place all the way over here, right? And they take a long way around, but they eventually get there. So what we think or what we've heard sometimes is this, and it's warped our theology. We hear that Abraham was a good guy. He was a Mr. Goodrich of his day. He was just kind of a good Christian guy living in a bad spot, and so God delivered him and rescued him out. That's not what the text says. It says that they served other gods, that Abraham was an idolater just like his daddy, and God rescues him out of that. God draws him out of that. God calls him out of that. That is called grace. He is an idolater, and God opens his eyes and draws him out of his idolatry and pulls him to the promised land, right? For no apparent reason, except for his good pleasure and his good favor. And what you have to understand that the only reason that the people of God, the nation of Israel, even exists is because of grace. And that's the starting place. The only rational choice to serve Christ, the only rational choice is to serve Christ. Why? Ultimately, because of grace. The only reason Israel exists is because of grace. The only reason you are a worshiper of Christ is because of grace. Who else offers the forgiveness of sins? Nobody. Who else loves you unconditionally? Despite what you do, and when you run away, he goes and chases after you. That's grace. Who else takes his enemy who hates him and makes him an adopted son and daughter? That's grace. Who else offers the glories of heaven and eternal life despite the fact that you deserve his wrath? That's grace. Who else offers resurrection? It's the only rational choice. Be, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel only exist because of grace. We only exist because of grace. And that's the starting place. And we could end the sermon there. Grace, that's it. But he gives more. He gives more reasons. Look at verse three. Then 
I took, again, it wasn't Abraham that said, I don't like this place. I don't like idols. I want to leave. No, I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. And I love this. I gave him Isaac. Isn't that a funny statement? That's a funny statement. I made him many. I gave him one kid. Okay, that's like when, a, you know, someone with a new child says, oh, we're so busy. We don't know what we're doing. It's all you And we're like, you guys are playing two-on-one right now. You're double-teaming. When you get to zone defense, then talk about busy. All right, that's, that's kind of one of those funny statements, right? But he says, I, I made him many. I gave him Isaac, right? And then Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau. Okay, now we're getting the ball rolling a little bit, but that's still only three. I got more than that in my house, all right? It doesn't seem like God is in much of a hurry here, but isn't that the way it is sometimes? Little by little, gradual by gradual. See, it's not... God doesn't want you to, to, to link on to the speed of his faithfulness, but to the fact of his faithfulness. He will do what he's going to do in his timing, even if it's little by little. And that's what he does with these guys. Then the next verse, to Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau. And notice this, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Now that's an interesting statement because Jacob is the chosen one. Jacob, whose name is later changed to Israel, is the chosen people of God, where Esau is not. But here in this, in this text, it, it it summarizes what happened. Jacob goes to slavery, and the non-promised kid gets his blessing. He gets his land. How is that fair? I mean, how does the, the one who's not blessed go get his inheritance, and everything's fine and dandy, and the one who is the chosen one of God, he ends up in Egypt in slavery for 400 plus years. That's not fair. But see, that's one of the great mysteries of the scripture and of God's ways. That sometimes, you know what? Sometimes Egypt is exactly where he wants his people. That's where he wants you, right? And sometimes he wants you to wait on the promised land. But there's no use bucking the mystery because we'll never figure it out completely. Why do good things happen to bad people, this and that? And why does this, this person's this and this person that? That's part of the, the beauty of our, all of our stories of grace. But this is something that shouldn't make us question as much as love and adore God because God is honest. Here, here's, here's the next reason that it's only rational to serve Christ, because the scripture is true, because it's honest, doesn't hide the rough spots. You go through all the scripture and all the heroes are bums. They are. From Gideon to David to Solomon, they're all bums at some point, even the apostles. And it doesn't pull any punches. And it says, you know what? Job was the most righteous man on the earth and he suffered hugely. And it's just honest. And that's one of the beauties of scripture. It doesn't gloss over the hard things. This is why you can trust the scripture because if it was trying to deceive you, it would hide some of these things. Three little words that should give you great encouragement about the resurrection, right? But some doubted. You ever read Matthew 28, the Great Commission? So they approached Jesus to worship, but some doubted. If you're trying to sell a bill of goods that's not true, you don't put those little three words in there. That doesn't exactly exude confidence in the resurrection that some of his own disciples doubted but it's got nothing to hide. It is honest. It is truthful. And God has showed us this is the way it is. This, some doubted, but you know what? He fixes the broken. He redeems his creation. He's true. And he's the only one that's telling the truth. Everyone else is lying. The scriptures are true. And so it's the only rational choice to follow Christ because he is true. He continues in verse 5. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, 
And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. He, he recounts just the deliverance through plagues, which none, one of them touched the Israelites, by the way. And then he talks about how he brought them to the Red Sea. And if you remember how the narrative goes, they are stuck between the Red Sea and the Egyptians are right behind him. And it's as if he led them into a cul-de-sac on purpose because he did, because he wanted them to see that salvation is from the Lord. And that there wasn't, oh, we'll swim across this thing. We'll take care of it. No, you were only delivered because of me. It's the same thing he says in verse 11 and 12. With, with, he did it with Jericho and he did it with the Amorites and all these guys that the walls fell down. It was because of him. And here's the next thing, reason it's the only rational choice. Because of the power of God, it is the only rational choice to follow Christ. Look what I did. I delivered you. I saved you. Every time, not one hair in your head was touched. When you consider the truth of the absolute omniscience and omnipotence of God, it is the only rational choice to follow Christ. I mean, if the Atlanta Falcons were coming down this weekend to play Pooler's eighth grade all-star team. Who are you going to put your money on? I mean, really? I, yeah. I, I, it is the Falcons, sorry. Okay, maybe I'll, the, the Patriots. Okay, how about the Patriots? But who, I mean, you would be foolish to say, I think Pooler's got a chance this year. Somebody's going to get killed. And that's, the, that's just a little, that's just not even a comparison between the power of God and everybody else, right? And, and it's, it's a, it's a, he destroyed Egypt. And if you study the plagues, every single one of the plagues is an attack on an Egyptian god. And what he is showing is Yahweh is better than every single one of these Egyptian gods. They don't have a chance. Even their ultimate god, their Pharaoh, who the firstborn is killed. Because the power of God is infinitely stronger than anything else. And so how foolish to think, oh, I'll, I'll do this. I'm, I'm gonna follow this. When Christ is omnipotent, all authority and all power is his. It's, it's the only rational choice, right? He continues, verse eight. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you and I gave them into your hand and he took possession of their land and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. He's talking about what happened in Numbers 23 and 24. He said, but I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. Balaam was his prophet for hire, and the Moabite king said, I want you to come and curse Israel. And, and he said, I, I can only do what God tells me to do. And every time he tries to curse him, he blesses him instead. And finally, the king's like, what are you doing? You have blessed them three times. He says, I got one more for you. And he blesses them a fourth time, right? And the king says, get out of here. He said, I protected you. I shielded you from Moab and from curses and from everything. I, I have guarded you, Israel. The next reason it's the only rational choice is because God protects his children. He guards his people. And you say, well, didn't guard me from that car accident, from losing my spouse, from, from that hardship. If we can step back and see the entire deal of all that God has shielded and protected us from, I think even in our hardship, we would say, Wow, yeah. I mean, I think about when I was 17, 18, doing the stupidest things and thinking I should be in jail. Many of you, decisions that you've made that should have come back and destroyed you, actions that God has shielded you from that. 
And if we could just step back and see all that God has protected us from. And ultimately, when Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God protects and shields his children from things. He loves his children, and he goes after the one when 99 are here. It's the only rational choice to serve Christ. It's the only rational choice. He continues. And I love the statement at the end. I skipped it on purpose because I want to come back to it at the end of verse 7. He says, you lived in the wilderness a long time. That's a summary of, of a lot. That's 40 plus years. And if you think about this, 40 years where you are feeding daily 2 million plus people in a desert with water included. You are providing water, sustenance, clothes for two plus million people. The city of Savannah with all its resources could maybe feed that many a day. If we got all the food in Walmart and got all the food in the Publix and got all, think about that. He does it every day for 40 years and no one dies of hunger ever. No one's dehydrated and oh, I can't go on. Get that guy an IV. Not one person drops from those things. God provides. He sustains them. And in verse 13, I gave you a land on which you had not labored in cities you had not built and you dwell on them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and olive orchards you did not plant. He said, you were moving into a land that is moving ready, furnished houses. You didn't build these cities. They were there. The vineyards are planted. They're ready to bear fruit. You did nothing. No fertilizer, no digging, no nothing. The wells have been dug. You just go out and get your water. I have provided everything, whether it's manna and quail and water or a townhome in Judah or an olive orchard in Ephraim. It's all been provided by me, both necessities in the wilderness and abundance in the promised land. I took care of it. The next reason it's only rational to follow Christ, it's the only logical choice is because he provides because of his provision. See, these are the things that Jesus teaches us to pray about. Our daily bread, whether it's Rice Krispies or chicken cacciatore or jobs or whatever that he provides. And let's, let's be super honest. Is there anyone in this room that cannot say that God has taken care of you? Yeah, there may be hardship and downsizing and struggle, but every single one of you here is vertical. You're breathing. And no one is starving, not one person, right? Because God has provided. And even in tragedy, got an email last week from one of our missionaries in Indiana. His house was not destroyed, but tore up by a tornado, right? Pete Frank, who's with uh, Gospel Link. And he's emailing out for help for Vietnam pastors, not for help for himself, for Vietnamese pastors. He's like, could you guys pick up a couple more pastors? not thinking about his house, because he understands God has provided. One of our own, this fire that happened out in Georgetown this past week, one of our own, was his place was destroyed, right? But there's been provision, and people are giving stuff, and there's going to be an opportunity to do that. Yet God takes care of his, even in, in those hard times. Christ promises, said, you know, you seek first the kingdom, and all these things will be added. I'll take care of those things. The birds, I clothe them. The lilies of the field, they're good to go. How much more valuable are you guys? So he provides, right? And that's when he comes to his conclusion. Now, in light of his grace, in light of his truth, in light of his provision, in light of his power, in light of his protection, now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. 
The text is meant to pull on your affections. It's like Paul in Galatians 2. I've been crucified with Christ. It's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And it's as if he keeps going on. And this life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who, who gave himself for me. And he's, he's excited. It's, it's that. This is why the reformers, I think, said this grace is irresistible. When you see it, when you understand it, how can you not, how can you resist it? Look how good God is and what he has done. So the, the hymn writer says, and what, what I want to, we're going to sing it later, and I want it to be true. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander. Whoa, we feel it, right? Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That, that's the heart of what Joshua is saying. Look at grace. Are you, are you telling me that there's anything like this? There's not. I, I'm reminded of what the disciples in John 6, Jesus preaches this, this very difficult sermon, and everyone bolts. They're like, they're not following him anymore. In fact, John says, many who were following him chose no longer to follow him. And Jesus looks at the 12 and says, y'all going to leave too? And Peter so wisely says, where are we going to go? Where are we going to go? You offer words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. That's it. Yahtzee, bingo. Where are you going to go? Nowhere. Because of God's grace and his provision, his protection, because he's good. And he, and Israel needs to see that. And he recounts, look what I've done. And so if we ended today and you, or you go to sleep now, look what God has done. Look at Bethlehem. Look at leaving the glories of heaven, becoming a man for you, and taking your sin upon himself. Look what he's done. That's grace. But Joshua has more. Verse 14, again, consider, if therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. And then look what he says. Put away the gods, little g, the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Seven times in these two verses, he uses the, the, Greek word, the Hebrew word that means served. I circled them in my Bible. It's obvious what he's saying. Serve, 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 serve. Stop, serve, 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 serve. He's saying, stop serving these little gods, these little Gs, and serve Yahweh. Serve Christ. And the idea behind serving is worship. That's why he links it with idolatry. The idea is worship. And what he is saying is this. If you're going to serve Christ, then, you, it, then it's an exclusive deal. There is exclusive worship, and that's it, period. You cannot come with your little G gods in this one hand and with my God and, my, and, and big G in this hand. You can't do it. God, it is exclusive. And we, we understand this in, in other things. We understand that Jesus says you can't have two masters while you'll hate one and love one. Those of you, you know, you football fans, you understand you cannot root for Georgia and Georgia Tech. You cannot root for Clemson and Carolina. You cannot root for the Braves and for the Phillies. It is not biblical. You cannot do these things, right? There's one or the other, Auburn, Alabama, whatever it is, right? Because there's, you cannot have divided loyalty. And that's what he's saying. Look, you got to choose, and I find it amazing that he has to tell them, put away the gods your father served beyond the river. That's 500 years earlier Abraham was beyond the river. 
They still have those gods, are you telling me? And, and, and put away the gods from Egypt? Are you kidding me? You still have them? And it's real easy to say, yeah, those bad Israelites. I can't believe they have that as we sit there with our little gods in our hands, right? How, how often? And he says, no, it's very strong in the Hebrew. It's put away once and for all. Put away, your hearts have been divided for all these years. Make up your mind. And the problem with Israel is the problem that, if we're honest, we face all the time, is that even though they're out of Egypt, their hearts are still back in Egypt a little bit. Their hearts are still above the river. And that's why the first commandment in the Ten Commandments is what? You shall have no other gods before me. That God did not, does not share his glory with another. He said, well, that's, that's Old Testament stuff. That's right, and that's why Jesus says, when he's asked, what's the greatest command? He says what? Same thing. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Oh, and the second commandment is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So whether you're Old Testament or New Testament, you cannot get away from the fact that God says, all your heart, all your son. And when you do that, that's when you love your neighbor as yourself. And so the question we have to come to, the text forces us is, who, are, who or what are we serving? Who or what are we worshiping? And all worship is, is, is giving worth. It's giving, it's elevating something. And, and just like the old scales, whenever you elevate something up, something goes down. It's just the way it is. That is worship. And whatever is elevated, whatever is worshiped, you will sacrifice to that. You'll sacrifice for that because that is, that is the object of your worship. And as a man and as a woman, as those created in the image of God, you are created and designed to worship. You are a worshiper. You are constantly worshiping. I'm not talking about singing. I'm just, you are constantly elevating. You are constantly glorifying something. The problem with our sin nature is that we, the creation likes to worship the creation rather than the creator, that Romans 1 says. We are constantly taking the good things that God has made for us to enjoy, good things, and we are making them the best thing. And when we elevate those, what happens to God? He goes down. I mean, good things like family. We can worship family. We can worship kids. Where everything we do, we pour our entire existence. We're driving them 73 hours a day, and we're doing all this just to make them happy, and they become this. And the problem with anything except worshiping God is that that cannot carry the weight of worship. It cannot carry the weight of glory. There's only one who can handle it. And so it destroys the object you're worshiping, right? And it disappoints. So if you are worshiping your spouse, if I just get married, then all, everything will be great. You will be greatly disappointed when your spouse lets you down, right? Because you are worshiping that. Or whether it's success and once you finally get to the top, you know, Steve Jobs, whatever it is, and you're, and you're empty, and you're still searching for something because it can't carry the weight. It destroys the worship item. Think about this. You don't think that that's true? Look at Justin Bieber. Look at the Biebs. Look at that punk right now. He is just a punk because he's been, for, since he was 12 years old, the object of worship, and it's destroyed him. That's all. He, he just thinks he's above everything. Now, why? Because nobody was meant to be worshiped except for Christ, period. And we can worship good things, food, our stomach can be our God, popularity, success, whatever it is. And so he says, yeah, it's really, easy. oh, I don't have any little wooden idols in my hand. No. But what are you worshiping? Right? Those things were meant not to be worshiped, but to worship Christ in them, to worship Christ in your hobbies, to glorify him there, in your sports teams, not worship sports teams. People were killed because their team lost last week. Do you realize that? An Auburn-Alabama game? Somebody got killed in a fight because they were mad. 
There's a worship issue there. Okay, that, that, that's, the, that's the idea. And so you're meant to be a worshiper in that. You're not to worship money. You're to worship with your money. You're to be generous and give and be a good steward. Right? And we had, I was wrong in this. All right, I'm just saying. We had one of the discussions a few weeks ago. Thanksgiving, my wife wanted to be generous. She wanted to be a good worshiper with money. She wanted to tip the waiter. He had already been tipped his 20%. She wanted to throw another 20 on the tip. And I'm thinking, Why? 20% is good, right? She wanted to be a good worshiper and a good steward. I wanted to say, it's enough. See, that's the idea of worship. Am I going to be generous? Am I going to be a steward? Right? So she got the blessing. I reluctantly worshiped myself and my 20, and it went away, and I got no, no joy, and she got the benefit of it. But that's the idea of worshiping Christ with your money not worshiping your money, worshiping Christ with your hobbies. Some of you ladies are decorating the house right now. And that in itself can be worshipful because you are modeling the Imago Dei where God has made you creative and he's made you a nurturer and you're making this great home. And that is a way to worship. But if it becomes a competition between you and the lady over there and you're trying to you know, sabotage her one light bulb out so that she can't, you know, oh, yeah. That's when it becomes a worship problem. And that's, that's just constantly what we're reevaluating our heart. What am I worshiping? Who am I glorifying? Right? And that's what he's saying, right? That's what he's saying. And I think if you really do some, some soul searching, just one day this week, I thought, okay, what are my objects of my worship? And the biggest thing I worship is myself because I sacrifice to myself and I sacrifice for myself. So ultimately, we are self-worshippers more than anything. And so... The challenge from the text this morning is serving Christ means exclusive worship. That means if you brought little G's in this morning with you, it's time to put them away once and for all. That's why at the end of 1 John, what does John warn of? He just kind of ends abruptly. He says, little children, guard yourself from idols. Just guard yourself. Be on guard. Because there's constantly things trying to steal your worship. So choosing Christ, it's the only rational choice, and it means exclusive worship. It's what Paul says in Romans 12, after unpacking the grace of God in chapters 1 through 11, he says, I, I appeal to you by the mercies of God, i.e. chapters 1 through 11, to present yourselves as a living sacrifice, present yourselves as an object of, of worshiping him. You are giving yourself. That's the idea, right? Exclusive worship. One more thing here. Verse 16. Then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us out and our fathers up from the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. And he did all those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we will also serve the Lord, for he is our God. And they make this great statement. No, we want to serve Yahweh. We want to serve Christ. Look what he's done, and they, they reaffirm everything Joshua said. But look at Joshua's response. Joshua, you would not hire Joshua as a salesman for your company. He says to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. What? You just told them to serve the Lord, and I'll say, no, 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 don't. It's the salesman that says, don't buy this car. You don't want this car. You don't want a car at all. Cars use gas. Cars you know, pollute. Cars don't buy anything. He's trying to talk them out of it. He says, you, you're not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn 
and do harm and consume you after you've done good. Now, what is he saying that for? Why would he do that? Here's why. Because he wants them not to be all emotional and make this emotional decision because they're all, oh, yeah, we want to do that. So I'm not impressed with your emotions. This is not a decision to take lightly. Following Christ is not some, oh, it's like with pickles or without. I don't know. I don't, you know, no big deal. What he's challenging them to do is the same thing Jesus does later in the, in the, in the uh, Gospels, is to count the cost. It's, it's to count the cost. This, to follow Christ is not something to be taken flippantly. It's not spicy chicken or Caesar salad. It doesn't really matter. It is a holy and a sacred decision. And look what he says. He says, God is a holy God. This is not Santa Claus, big cuddly God in the sky. He is holy. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is the great and mighty God. His holiness, his, his distinctness is so holy, the only way he can, he can have you as his son or daughter is that he kills his only begotten son. That's how holy he is. You can't take this decision lightly. He says he's a jealous God, not jealous in a sinful way, for that which is rightfully his. These are his people. These are ones he delivered. It, it's, there's a righteous jealousy there. It'd be if... On a wedding day, a wife completely ignores her husband, dances with every other guy at the party, and flirts with every other guy. How would he respond? He would be jealous, and he would be rightfully so. That's the idea. These are rightfully his people. Paul says we have been bought with a price. Peter says it's the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And so he says he is jealous for what is his. He, he wants it. He is worthy of worship. And so when you go bring these little wooden things in, Look what I got. Isn't this great? Compared to the mighty God, he says he's jealous. And he says he will not forgive your transgressions. And, and look, when you come to a, a hard passage like that, you say, what does that mean? I thought God was forgiving. Always interpret what is difficult in light of what is clear. Does God forgive sins? Of course he does. The scripture is filled. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. So what is he saying here? Under the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, you couldn't just go, Let's just go do this, and then we'll go up and have an offering. We'll just kind of go and disobey, and then we'll just go kind of make an offering and make it go away. That would be considered a high-handed sin, and there was actually no sacrifice for that. And under the covenant, if the Mosaic covenant, if they began to worship Baal or the Asheroth or all these other things, he said, I will pull my hand back from you, and I will send people to judge you. That's what he's saying. If you, if you turn from this God who's done all these things, look, there's going to be ramifications. So big thing, don't take it lightly. Count the cost. Count the cost. And it's a healthy place for me as a man to hear him say, you cannot, you're not able to serve the Lord. Because it's really easy for us to say, yes, I'm gonna go out, I'm gonna conquer this, I'm gonna do this. It sounds a lot like a guy named Peter who right after the Lord's Supper says, I will never betray you. I will never deny you. And then what, three hours later, uh, Jesus, Nazareth? Never heard of him. I am way too sinful and proud and angry and impatient of a man to think, oh, I can do it. And if you don't believe me, you can just go ask my wife and she'll give you a list from today. Do you think, I can do it. I can do it on my own. No temptation. I mean, to him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Right? It is a healthy place for a church to hear we're not able to. The only way I can say maybe is because of grace. Because under the new covenant, he gives me a soft heart and he gives me a spirit 
and he enables me to bear fruit. That's the only reason. Count the cost, right? Count the cost. That's what Jesus says in, in Luke 14. He says, all these people are following him. He says, count the cost, what it means to follow me. And he gives two parables, a guy that needs to go and attack another kingdom, and he says, he's not gonna attack unless he's counted the cost. A guy that wants to build a tower, he says, he's not gonna build the tower unless he counts the cost. He says, count the cost, because it's gonna cost you maybe denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following me. So count the cost. And that's all Joshua is saying, Joshua and Jesus, which is interesting because both of their names are the same, right? Yeshua. Yeshua, Old Testament, Hebrew, Jesus, Jesus, Greek, same name, both challenging and the same thing. Count the cost. Count the cost. Jesus does not offer himself as a lame sacrifice for us to give him lame worship. He is the God of the universe. He deserves our all. And we don't always give it, and that's, we understand that, and we're not going to be perfect. But when we don't, we need to come back and say, look at how great Jesus is. He's the Messiah. And some of us here may need to stop playing kind of tag you're it with your relationship with God. Okay, today's on again. Today's off again. Today's on. I don't feel like following Christ today. This is the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace whom the government will rest upon his shoulder, who will rule and reign with a rod of iron. It's not to be taken lightly. And the application for what Joshua says, they say, no, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. They said, we are witnesses. And he said, then put away, what's the application again? Put away foreign gods. It's just get rid of the idols. That's the application. If you're going to worship, then you need to put away your idols and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said, the Lord, our God, we will serve his voice. We will obey. We're going to follow him. We're going to obey him. We're going to love him. We're going to do our best. Did they, did they do it? You know what? What I love about this text, they did. I mean, they weren't perfect, but you jump down to verse 31. It says, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elder who outlived Joshua and had known all the work the Lord did. This generation, they made the commitment and they did it. Isn't that awesome? I mean, the rest may, fell away later, but this, these guys, they chose this day whom they would serve. They counted the cost. They understood it meant exclusive worship. They looked at his goodness and his grace and they said, we, this is what we want. And they finished the course. That's what they did. Joshua sets up a monument, an Ebenezer, so to speak. Joshua wrote these words. In a, they, they redid the covenant, verse 25. Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, put place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. Joshua wrote these words in a book of the law, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the terabith that was there by the sanctuary of the Lord. As a reminder, again, and Joshua said, Behold, the stone shall be a witness against us, for he has heard all the words of the Lord. He has spoken to us. Therefore, it was a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. And Joshua went away. Every, and Joshua sent the people away and every man to his inheritance. And then he dies. And the book ends. Right. This call to follow Christ is a, is a challenging call for some. Think of the man this week in Libya, our brother who was killed. God called him there to teach chemistry at, a, at a, a school in Libya. He was a member of a church in Austin, Texas. One of my buddies is one of the pastors on staff, Austin Stone. He was killed on his morning jog. He wrote a letter to John Piper, I think it was two, two years ago, that said that one, something Piper had preached that influenced him to go to Libya. And he loved the Libyan people. He loved them. All his students said he loved Libya and he loved the Libyan people. It cost him his life. 
And what I love John Piper said yesterday or the day before was, let's, let's flood the world with his replacements. He said it might cost, in that guy's case, his life. But he entered into the joy of his master. He entered in the joy of his master. And, and, I, and I can't, this, the great thing about this text and the great thing for Joshua is this is choose you individually this day whom you're gonna serve. I can't choose for you. One of the things that I realized very early as a pastor is I cannot change one person. Do you know that? People come into my office and they think I'm gonna, I can't change one person. I can't make you stop lying, going to sites on the internet, mistreating your spouse, making silly decisions. Neither do I want to. I can't. I can't change, if you think you can change your kids' hearts, if someone told you, as long as you plug in this formula and you can out pops a good little Christian kid, someone lied to you. You cannot change the heart of anybody. Only the Spirit of God can do that. You can shepherd them and love them and guide them. But in the end, kids, teenagers, under teenagers, you cannot ride your parents' coattails. You have to choose this day. Because guess what? This generation did it. The next generation failed. They didn't. You got to choose to stay for yourself. Because everyone's got to serve somebody. And the words of Joshua and the words of Jesus are, Christ is worth it. He's the only rational choice. Right? And what I want for us to be a church that there's a pile of stones all over Savannah of people who faithfully finished well. You know, Nelson Mandela died this week. Many of you obviously saw that. And I don't know the man's spiritual condition. He was 95 years old. That's a long time to live. Accomplished a great many feats in, in South Africa and across the world. And my, many nice things and great things will rightfully be said about him at his funeral. And I was thinking, what will be said at mine? Right? What will I want to be said? What will I want to hear when I enter in the joy of, of Christ, my master? That's, we, we have to live with that in mind. That's the only reason Jesus came and endured the cross, because he saw the joy that was set before him. And that's, that's the motivation for us. What will they say about you when you're gone? Nice house, nice car, good businessman. Those are great things, but in 100 years, who cares? Most likely, unless you become the next Billy Grant, in 100 years, no one's going to know about you. Right, But forever and ever, if you choose Christ, if you make that choice to make him Savior and Lord, that is what matters. You gotta serve somebody. So today, let's be a church. If we came in with our little Gs, let's leave them at the door. And let's worship Christ and Christ alone. Why do you guys stand? Uh, and we'll, we'll sing a few songs in worship. Lord Jesus, you are good. You are gracious. Thank you for this book, which has been challenging for us. I pray that there would be lasting change. I pray that this church will be a church that constantly is choosing to serve you in light of who you are. We love you because you first loved us. We long fully, just like the New Testament, we say, Maranatha, even so, come, Lord Jesus. It's like Peter says, and though we have not seen him, we love him and do not see him now, we believe in him and we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of our faith the salvation of our souls. May that be true of our church.
Lord Jesus. We long in this Advent season, we long for you to return. Until you do, may we be found choosing to serve. In Christ's name.